The most common question that I'm asked when I tell people that I'm a criminal defense attorney is, do I ask my clients if they did it? The second most commonly asked question, how do you defend such a person? And the answer for both is the same. Much like what we continually say about life in general on this pod, in that it's not black and white, it falls squarely in the grays. Because for as long as I've been practicing law, I've had maybe three occasions where during an initial client consult that an alleged offender has come clean and admitted that they in fact did commit whatever they are accused of doing by law enforcement. Now, that is not such a stunning number when you take into consideration that I never, ever ask my clients if they did it. It's not because that I don't want to know the answer, no. It's because the answer has no bearing on what my job as a defense attorney is. Now, if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, what the hell does he mean? That seems like the entire point of being a defense attorney. Well, after watching years of TV and movies, I can completely understand why you would think that. But the simple fact is that it's wrong. And I'll tell you why. So when a client calls and says, hey, I need a lawyer, I say, okay. Now I need you to listen very carefully to the question that I am about to put forth to you. Then I will ask them, what are the cops saying that you did? I don't ask them, what did you do? And there is a clear distinction between those two questions. So my initial question is asking them to relate to me what the cops told them they were being arrested for. They then will tell me what they are charged with. I will then ask if the cops questioned them after they were taken into custody, which, if you know anything about me as a lawyer, I have one golden rule, that I tell every single person that I know and any potential client, which is if you are in custody and being questioned by the police. A very different thing than being asked questions as a witness. You need to shut the hell up. You don't say a word and you assert your right to have a lawyer present during questioning. Now, it's a very simple rule to understand, but it's a very difficult rule to follow. Why is that, you may ask? Well, it's because law enforcement agents are trained to lie, to question people, to elicit information. And the typical move is for them to tell someone that they are questioning, that they are there just to try to help them out that once they answer a few questions to clear things up, that they'll be free to leave. And beyond that, they're very skilled in making it seem as if you don't have the option not to answer their questions. These tactics are incredibly effective in getting people to talk. And when you combine that with the fact that people are generally freaking out when they are in that particular situation, it creates a perfect storm. Now, I bet a ton of you out there are saying to yourselves, if I didn't commit the crime, why in the hell would I be worried about talking to the police? I've got nothing to hide. I'm innocent. I'm no criminal. Well, my friends, it is you folks that need to follow the golden rule more than most. Lawyering up does not make you look guilty to the cops. No, what it does is it makes you look informed. It makes you look smart. Believe me, no cop ever decides that someone is the guy based on whether or not they lawyered up. A suspect or a person of interest that doesn't lawyer up is the equivalent for the cops 
of waking up on Christmas morning, rubbing your little sleepy eyes, crawling out of bed and going out to peek to see what Santa has left for you while you slept, and discovering that the entire living room floor is buried in gifts. Pure bliss, because it's that type of gift. Remember that if someone has been picked up or is being questioned by the police as a person of interest, then the police have acquired some information that has put that person on the radar. And more likely than not, that cop has formed some type of opinion about the person they're questioning, which will skew how they perceive the answers they're being given and the demeanor that they're observing. The thought of being in a situation like that without having someone next to you that has a knowledge of the system and how to protect your rights is terrifying. It can and often does go sideways in the blink of an eye. If you want to make a statement to them, that's fine. You run it through your lawyer first and they will advise you. If it starts to go off the rails, then you're protected. The bottom line is it's the smart move to have an attorney with you anytime you're being questioned. It's as simple as that. So circling back, if they made the mistake of making a statement, I'll ask them what they said and what the cops asked them in return. At that point, I have a pretty good idea of what's going on with the case. Now, I do not have any idea what actual evidence law enforcement has on them at that point, but I know that they believe that they have enough for them to have moved forward with the arrest and charging them. Now, if I make the mistake of asking them if they did what the cops are saying that they did, it can affect their case in several ways. First, from the morality side of things. Look, I'm a human being. I care about people. I do not want to have the added pressure of knowing that somebody may have done something horrible, interfering with my ability to do the job that I have taken a sworn oath to do, which is to zealously represent my client, even on a subconscious level. That's a risk I'm not willing to take because the reality of the criminal justice system is that if the cops have done their job properly and have collected the evidence, that in most circumstances, my client, if they actually committed the crime, will be found guilty. Or the even more likely scenario is that my client will plead out without even going to trial. Now we've talked about the small percentage of cases that actually end up going to trial a couple of episodes ago. That's because most people that commit crimes are not very good at it, and they leave a trail of evidence behind. Again, what you see on TV shows and in movies is not reality. It's not even close. Now, the second reason is that if my client makes some type of admission to me, not necessarily that they committed the crime, but anything that would tend to make them look guilty, I cannot at trial put them on the stand and have them testify to a different story because that's suborning perjury and it's illegal and I won't do it ever. So the fact is that I simply don't ask them because it does not assist me in defending them. And most defendants deny that they committed the crime anyway. So what I do is examine all the evidence that has been collected and I evaluate the strength of the state's case and whether or not the cops violated any of the defendant's constitutional rights when trying to make the case. Now look, if the state has a ton of circumstantial evidence, I inform my client of exactly what they have on them. And I ask them if there's a reasonable explanation. 
If they have one, then hey, I will advise them that we should probably go to trial. If not, I tell them that it's going to be a very, very difficult case to win. And ultimately, it is their choice whether or not we go to trial, not mine. If the cops violated my client's rights, then I file a motion to suppress or quash. And if the cops broke the law, then evidence should and will get suppressed. That may end the state's case. It's a steep price to pay for the state. But in all honesty, they have no one to blame but themselves. It's a clear don't kill the messenger situation, as it is the obligation and duty of the defense attorney to file the motions. They simply cannot and should not be blamed for doing their job. So that is a very long answer to a very short question. But we hope that diving into the answer gives you an even deeper glimpse into the mind of a defense attorney. We promise that it will serve you well as we progress through this tragic case. Because we never asked Anthony Garcia if he committed the crimes, but he sure as hell proclaimed his innocence from beginning to end. And it was by far the most challenging case of our careers, and one that still has me wondering if the jury got it right, 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 got it
Back in May of 2001, Anthony Garcia seems to have gained his footing. And after agreeing to being placed under review and further agreeing to adhere to and complete certain conditions in order to get the administrators to reconsider their decision not to re-up Garcia for the following year, the two months of relative quiet seemed to have come to a screeching halt when the wife of another resident named Dr. Hamish discloses the makings of a mini-scandal. When she contacts the admins at Creighton and informs them that somebody from the facility had called her home and advised her that her husband's vacation time had not been approved and that he will need to come back into the hospital. It quickly becomes evident that this was patently false and that somebody from within the pathology department was taking part in a cruel hoax against the aforementioned Dr. Hamish. The admin named Karen that took the initial call from Hamish's wife begins conducting her own internal investigation. And, in very short order, a clear picture of who the prankster very well may have been comes into focus. And it is none other than Anthony Garcia. If true, this obviously will not bode well for Garcia continuing his education at Creighton. And to make matters worse, it may completely impede on his ability to find another residency willing to take him on. It's hard to imagine just exactly what might have been going through his brain when he thought that this prank would be a good idea or that he wouldn't get caught. Let's see what's what. Let's dig in. It's May 21st of 2001 and Bill Hunter just sat down at his desk, having just returned from vacation. He was hoping to ease back into work without the necessity of having to put out any fires that may have ignited during his absence. As it turns out, this day was not going to be one of those days. Sitting in the middle of his desk is a letter addressed to him from one of his residents, Dr. Hamish. Hunter takes a sip of his hot coffee and begins reading. Dear Dr. Hunter, on Thursday, May 17th, 2001, I was off work taking day one of the step three USMLE. At around 2.50 p.m., someone called my home and told my wife, who answered the phone, the following, quote, this is the pathology department and I am calling to tell you that Dr. Hamish has not met the educational requirements for his residency and he has to come back into the hospital immediately, end quote. And before my wife could ask the identity of the caller, the caller hung up. My wife got extremely worried and paged me. When I went on a short break during the exam, I called home and my wife told me what happened. She told me that she had called St. Joseph Hospital and told Karen about the phone call and that Karen told my wife that she will ask Dr. Hunter and other staff if they know anything about the contents of the call. My wife also said that Karen called her back to say that nobody knew anything about any issues that related to the phone call. Dr. Hunter said that there was nothing to worry about and to have him call me after the exam. On Friday, May 18th, 2001, I came into the department around 4.30 p.m. Karen told me what happened regarding that phone call. I found out that two other pathology assistants had overheard two residents, Anthony Garcia and Ben Nugent, discussing making that phone call to my house. Now, I've been ignoring other forms of harassment from those two residents on the account of being immature acts. On the other hand, calling my home 
and harassing my family is a very serious issue that cannot be ignored. I request immediate action to ensure that this type of harassment cannot and will not be tolerated, and it will not be repeated. Sincerely, Dr. Hamish. Well, shit, Hunter mutters as he places the letter back down on his desk and picks up his phone to call Karen in order to get some more details on what she may have uncovered regarding the incident. Karen tells him that she has spoken with several people, and based on what she's learned, it's clear that Anthony Garcia made the call, along with Ben Nugent. Now, she isn't certain, 100%, which of the two had actually done the speaking during the call, but she's inclined to believe that it was Garcia, as Hamish's wife had indicated that the speaker did not possess an accent, and Nugent has an accent, whereas Garcia does not. She further informs Hunter that she's gotten written statements from both pathology assistants outlining what they overheard last week. Hunter tells Karen that he's going to call Dr. Brumbeck to get his feedback and that he'll reach back out shortly. He disconnects the call and dials Brumbeck's extension. Brumbeck answers on the first ring. Roger Brumbeck. Roger, it's Bill Hunter. We have a problem with a couple of the residents. What now, Bill? Well, as you may or may not know, I just returned from vacation and came to find a letter from Dr. Hamish waiting for me on my desk. Hunter proceeds to outline the contents of the letter and the phone conversation with Karen to Brumbeck. He adds that in his opinion, he believes that Karen ferreted out the right individuals. Hunter hears Brumbeck sigh on the other end of the line. Is this the same guy that left the body laying face down at the hospital a couple of months ago? Yes, Hunter answers. I asked you to get a handle on that situation. What happened? Roger, I did. You know this. We elected not to renew his contract at the end of June and informed him of the decision. I also indicated to him that he would be better suited to resign as opposed to letting us fire him. He came to me a few weeks later, very contrite, and he had asked that we give him a second chance. I spoke with others in the department, including you, and we all came up with a list of things that he would have to do in order for us to even entertain the concept of reconsidering our decision. I went through the criteria with him and required him to sign off on the document, which he did. I thought it was under control, Roger. I really, really did. Garcia had been performing much better during the past couple of months. Well, Bill, it appears that we have a bad egg here. I want both Garcia and Nugent in my office today at 2 p.m., and I want you in here as well, Bill, with your residence. With that, Brumbeck hangs up the phone, abruptly. Hunter calls Karen and asks her to reach both Garcia and Nugent and tell them to be in Brumbeck's office at 2 p.m. At 2 p.m., both Garcia and Nugent enter the waiting area of Brumbeck's office. Hunter pokes his head out and asks Garcia to come in and tells Nugent to remain. Garcia enters the office and Brumbeck is seated at his desk, and he is flanked by Hunter, who is standing next to him. Brumbeck looks at Garcia and says, Sir, have a seat. Garcia does as he is told. Go ahead, Bill. Hunter then proceeds to outline the circumstances regarding the prank phone call to Hamish's house on the 17th. Garcia sits quietly and listens as Hunter informs him of the accusation and asks Garcia what he has to say for himself. 
Garcia tells Hunter he knows nothing about it. Hunter tells Garcia that the lab personnel overheard his conversation talking about placing the call, what was going to be said, and then, in fact, a call was placed to Hamish's wife a short time later. Garcia tells Hunter, still doesn't ring any bells. Hunter studies Garcia carefully. Hmm. Okay, well, Dr. Garcia, we are terminating your services immediately. As was the situation before, when you left a corpse face down on the table, we are giving you the opportunity to resign, as opposed to being fired. This will serve you well in the future, sir, as we will not have to report the incident to the national database. I will tell you this, doctor, no matter whether you elect to resign or not, you will be escorted to your desk, at which time you will clear all of your belongings, you will then turn in your credentials, and you will be removed from the building. You will not be allowed to practice medicine in the department any further. With that, Garcia stands up. I'm not resigning. I will be filing an appeal immediately. With that, he leaves the office. Hunter follows Garcia out of the office, calling after him. Dr. Garcia, you will need to clear out your desk immediately, sir. Garcia, however, did not go to his desk. Instead, he goes to the graduate medical education office and files his appeal. Meanwhile, back at Brumbeck's office, Nugent is summoned in. Immediately upon entering, Nugent begins proclaiming his innocence, saying that he didn't do anything, and that it was, quote, him, end quote, pointing to the spot that Garcia had vacated just minutes ago. Nugent is adamant. He's saying that he was just studying for microbiology and that Garcia had come in and started complaining about Hamish. Now, Keep in mind that Nugent is folding like a cheap suit without even having been told what he's accused of. Nugent continues to rat on and assign blame to his fellow resident, stating that Anthony was pissed that Dr. Hamish was absent and had left all of his outstanding work for Garcia to do. Nugent continues to spill, saying that Garcia wasn't aware that he was taking his step three exams and that he just wanted to call Hamish at home to get him to come back and do his work. It was a joke. And then, Garcia had left the room. Brumbeck continues to sit and listen while his administrator takes down every word Nugent says. Nugent keeps giving up the goods. Garcia then comes back in the room and he says, quote, let's do it, end quote. Nugent claims that he didn't want to, but he felt that he couldn't stop Tony from making the call. Brumbeck asks where he made the call from. Nugent tells Brumbeck that it was from the phone at the front of the residency room and that he was sitting in the room when the call was made, but had nothing to do with it. Nugent also tells Brumbeck that the residents had heard a rumor that Dr. Hamish had been absent before, with the reason being that he was taking a test, but in fact was just sitting at home, and that they had also heard that Hamish had been called at home on that occasion and had been told to come back into work. Brumbeck takes it all in and then informs Nugent that this is a very serious violation of the university's harassment policy and further, that being an accomplice is just as bad as being the person who actually did it and that the accomplice will be treated in the same way as the person that actually made the call. Nugent begins to protest only to be interrupted by Brumbeck. At no time, sir, between the incident 
In this meeting, did you inform Dr. Hunter that you were concerned about the nature of the call or that you thought that the call was inappropriate? I cannot tell you how important it is for doctors to know right from wrong. At this point, well after the fact, Nugent tells Brombeck that there were other things that Garcia had either said or done that he had been concerned about. Brombeck fires back saying, once again, you did not voice these concerns to anyone prior to right now. Brombeck asks Nugent to repeat the story again, which he does, except in the second version, he claims that he asked Garcia not to make the call. Brombeck isn't having any of it, and Nugent is informed that he is going to be terminated and that he will be escorted to clear out his desk and off the premises. He further offers Nugent the same deal, meaning he can resign as opposed to being fired, which will result in no impact for the year of residency training, and further, that he'd be paid through June. Nugent asks about getting another job, and Brumbeck informs him that Hunter would assist him in finding another position, but that no positive reference letter would be written, but that they won't write a negative one either. Nugent asks for this in writing and Brumbeck obliges. And at 2.50 p.m., Nugent signs the letter of resignation and hands his pager, his ID badge, and his keys over to the admin. Hunter comes into the room and escorts Nugent to his desk to get his belongings. Bill Hunter then returns to his office and prepares the following letter addressed to Anthony Garcia. Dear Dr. Garcia, you're hereby given notice of termination of employment for actions taken by you and Dr. Nugent on May 17, 2001, leading to the harassment of fellow resident and his family and to the detriment of the pathology residency program. Termination will officially take place 15 days from this notice. However, you are hereby relieved of all patient care responsibilities at once and are to immediately vacate your office and not return. You're also to return all hospital and university property, including, but not limited to, ID cards and keys, immediately. You were further instructed not to attempt to contact, visit, or harass any hospital or university employees or their families. This letter is signed by both Bill Hunter and Roger Brombeck and is hand-delivered to Garcia, who is still sitting at his desk. Garcia opens the envelope, reads it, and gets up and leaves his desk and the building. Anthony heads back to his apartment and types the following letter to the chair of the GME committee. Quote, This letter is to formally appeal the letter of termination written by doctors William J. Hunter and Roger Brumbeck. The accusations against me are unfounded and are not true. Please notify me when the six-member ad hoc committee is formed. I will have legal counsel present. Please accept this letter also as a grievance against the pathology residency program. I have complained of abuse and harassment directed towards me in the past, and I do so once again. This residency program has had many complaints against them in the past, and there's a precedent of abuse against residents. Furthermore, I will be on vacation from May 24th, 2001 to June 7th, 2001. Signed, Anthony Garcia. On May 24th, Garcia receives a letter from the director of the GME department requesting that Anthony provide a detailed basis for his appeal. In response, Garcia writes the following. Dear sir, I received your letter dated May 24th, 2001. The basis of my appeal is that the accusations against me are not true. Hunter and Brumbeck are the ones who made the accusations and terminated my employment. 
The burden to justify their actions lies solely with them. They're the ones who must provide evidence. When the ad hoc committee hears the evidence, the committee will see that there was no basis for their actions. Please form the ad hoc committee so this matter does not have to be resolved via the court system. Sincerely, Anthony J. Garcia. So as of May 24th, for all intents and purposes, Garcia has been completely banned from Creighton University. Now, despite this fact, Anthony is actively searching for another program to apply to. And at some point during this month-long period of time between May 24th and June 20th, he approaches Bill Hunter and asks him if he will assist him in finding another residency. Bill Hunter, being the professional and gentleman that he is, of course agrees to help Anthony, despite what has occurred within the program over the last 12 months. Now, this particular scenario is extremely important to remember when we get to trial, because it would be one of the factors that we, as Garcia's attorneys, have a very difficult time reconciling, as we believe that it directly contradicts the state's theory of the case which essentially boils down to Garcia's termination from Creighton was the source of his rage, which ultimately led him to murdering four innocent people. So store the following information in your memory banks. It'll come in handy, I promise. On June 26, Garcia receives a written notice from the GME Ad Hoc Appeal Committee that they had met and found ample evidence Garcia had acted in an unprofessional manner and had violated the university's harassment policy. And therefore, it would be upholding the department's decision to terminate his contract. Garcia is informed that he has 10 days to appeal this decision to the dean of the medical school, which, of course, Garcia does. Now, despite the fact that all of this is happening simultaneously, Bill Hunter informs Garcia that he is a colleague at the University of Illinois at Chicago, referred to as UIC who has a residency opening in her pathology department and that he will reach out to her on his behalf, which Hunter does. Additionally, Hunter and one of Garcia's faculty members from Creighton both agreed to prepare letters of recommendation on Anthony's behalf as well. So on July 2nd, one of Garcia's faculty advisors writes a glowing letter stating in part that, quote, Garcia is the only resident who successfully passed his USMLE Step 3 exam amongst the first and second year residents. He also picks up his diagnostic pathology very quickly. He's always eager to learn and learns well on the subject if he puts the effort into it. As far as I know, he did fairly well on his other rotations as well. It is my opinion that he deserves serious consideration for an opportunity in a new residency program. And then on June 3rd, 2001, Bill Hunter drafts the following recommendation on behalf of Anthony Garcia. To whom it may concern, I am writing this letter in support of the application of Anthony Garcia, MD, to your residency program. Dr. Garcia completed the first year of his pathology residency on June 30th of 2001. Within the past 12 months, he completed seven months of anatomic pathology and five months of clinical pathology. Additionally, he's completed approximately 22 autopsies. Dr. Garcia is a hard worker and is relocating for personal reasons. Sincerely, Bill Hunter. Obviously, at this point in time, Garcia is thrilled. 
and he prepares and submits his application to UIC on July 5th of 2001. Hunter and the rest of the faculty allow Garcia to state on his application that he has completed a full year of the program at Creighton, which is a big deal as it allows him to enter UIC's program as a second year resident as opposed to having to redo the first year. Then, on July 12th, Anthony receives notice from the office of the dean of the medical school that they too will be upholding the initial decision to terminate Garcia's employment. At this point, Garcia is officially an afterthought at Creighton University. However, this decision is of little or no consequence to Garcia, as he has already, with the instrumental help of Bill Hunter, submitted an application to the UIC residency program. By July 24th of 2001, Garcia's tendered and signs an offer to enter UIC's residency program, which is to begin on August 1st of 2001. After accepting the position at UIC, Garcia then applies for his Illinois medical license, which is granted, and by September 1st of 2001, Anthony Garcia is a licensed medical doctor in the state of Illinois and is employed as a resident in UIC's pathology program. The speed in which this pivot, moving from one program into another, is impressive. Now, whether Hunter's motivation in helping Garcia find and get into another program was entirely based upon Creighton University's desire to avoid future litigation is debatable. That scenario is certainly more likely than Hunter going the extra mile for Garcia out of the kindness of his heart. But at the end of the day, from Garcia's perspective, I'm not so sure he cares at all what inspired Hunter to help him because the end result is that Creighton and Butra are in his rearview mirror and he is firmly entrenched in a new program in the city of Broad Shoulders. Now, we will soon get into Garcia's time at UIC, but that is for a different day. What remains the most important thing for you, the listeners, to remember is that Garcia's time at Creighton was the absolute heart of the state's case against him. Now, maybe it's just me, and maybe I'm not able to look at the underlying facts with complete objectivity because of my role in the case, but from where I stand, I find it incredibly difficult to believe based on how things ended at Creighton and specifically what lengths that Hunter went in order to get Garcia another gig, that this is a viable motive for the state to rely on. I mean, seriously, how angry could Garcia really be with Hunter in light of what he did for him at the very end, which was to get him a new job at a reputable school? Now, the state of Nebraska, as you will soon see, would have you believe that not only was Garcia still enraged seven years after the fact, but that he had moved from just being enraged to becoming homicidal. Now, in fairness, there are other aspects the state relied on in their case, which we will get to, but it always came back to Garcia's time at Creighton as the primary motive for revenge. But revenge for what? We will dive into this deeper as the season progresses. So, as we said before, keep this portion of the pod tucked in the back of your mind. Because, like with anything, context matters. Meanwhile, flash forward to 2011, and Doug Harout, 
is back in Omaha, fresh off his trip to the Steel City. He briefs his fellow officers on what he uncovered, and it boils down to one thing, and that is that the Russians' whereabouts on the day of the murders cannot be confirmed. Nor can his whereabouts on the day before or after the murders be confirmed. With that, the challenge becomes to see if they can pinpoint his location on the 13th of March, 2008. In light of the fact that it appears that the Russian did not have a cell phone at that time, triangulating his location is all the more difficult. Omaha PD decides that diving into his email accounts may lead them to some clues of his whereabouts on the date in question. Accordingly, a search warrant is drafted and signed by a judge and faxed to Microsoft on February 18th of 2011. They are seeking all copies of all emails to and from the Russians' Hotmail account from June of 2007 through March of 2008. And then on March 1st of 2011, OPD receives two emails from Microsoft, which give detailed instructions informing the cops on exactly how they can access the Russians' emails. They begin familiarizing themselves with the files contained within, which include submenus such as user info, history info, folders which include active, deleted, saved, and trash. The number of emails that appear within all of the folders sits at 2,398. It's a lot to work with, but they're going right to the meat of the matter and examining the emails dated between March 11th and March 15th, 2008. The very first email that is opened is dated March 11, 2008, and was sent by the Russian at 6.26 a.m. to someone named Pam. The subject line states, Please keep it under the hat. The content of the email reads as follows. My attorney advised me to minimize contact with Creighton. Wonder if you'd remain confidential about our telephone conversation. Thanks. The Russian. This email is interesting, if for nothing else, that it's clear that Creighton still weighs heavily on the mind of the Russian. Now, the IP address associated with this particular email is 24.23.116.197, which, based on a what's my IP address lookup, is Pittsburgh, PA, which is where he's supposed to be on March 11th. Now, Omaha PD is not able to glean much more than that from the text of the email, but it certainly gives them the inspiration to keep digging, which is exactly what they do. The next email of interest, oddly, is forwarded from the Russian's personal email to his Allegheny Medical Examiner's work email at 10.44 a.m. on March 12th. The original email came from a man named Tim, who had an IP address of 151.201.19.192, which is also located in Pittsburgh. And the subject line reads, where to pick up your tickets for opera singer Denise Graves on Thursday, March 13th. The body of the email reads as follows. Hello. I'll be at the Oakland Kiva Han Coffee Shop at the corner of South Craig Street and Forbes Avenue tomorrow from 9.30 a.m. 
until 12.45 p.m. I'll be sitting at a table by the large window facing Forbes Avenue. Cheers, Tim. Now, what's really interesting to me about this particular email is the fact that the Russian forwarded this from his personal email to his work email. Why? Clearly, it would certainly help serve as an alibi if the Russian was convinced that, at some point, OPD would make their way to him to talk post-murder. He would also assume that they would be digging through his work computer and email in order to verify his alibi. Now, I'm at a loss as to any other reason why he would have done this, because the email didn't state anything requiring the person picking up the tickets to bring a copy of the email, meaning that he would have had to print out a hard copy. It just strikes me as being very strange, because I would completely understand why he would forward the email from his work email to his personal email, then delete it off his work email in the event that his employers audit their employees' emails or something of that nature. But remember, the Russian apparently did not have a cell phone at this time. That will constitute all of the emails that were sent and received by the Russian on the 12th of March. And it is with bated breath that Omaha PD anxiously begins searching for emails sent to or by the Russian on the day of the murders. And they aren't the only ones that will be waiting with bated breath, as you will have to wait too until the next episode of Defense Diaries. Hey guys, it's time for a few shout outs to all the people that make this pod happen, and that will start with the man in the middle, the big man. D, love you. Thank you for everything you do. You're the best in the business. To Taras and Ryan Gack, we love you guys. We love your music. It makes the show what it is. To Alex and Courtney, we love you guys. Thank you for all your social media crushing. It's really been a lot of fun to watch what you guys do. And if you guys are not following us on Instagram or Facebook or in the Insiders group on Facebook, you should. It's a lot of fun. And on top of that, we really love to interact with our listeners. So... Go ahead, follow us. We dare you. And finally, to Allison, I love you. Thank you so much for everything you do. I know you're up there just dying, trying to keep our law firm afloat. So, uh, which leads me to our Patreon. And we absolutely adore you guys. We need more people to join Patreon. We really do. We'd love to have more of you. If you want ad-free, that's the spot to go. Additionally, we throw on extra content. It goes to a good cause, I promise, which is us making the show. So if you want that to continue, maybe think about joining Patreon, even for a couple of months. You know, it's a, it's a minor investment and we put a lot of work into the show. So that's a way that you can show us that you guys appreciate what we are doing. And then finally, 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 to you out there that listen to our show week in, week out, we absolutely love you. And I could not be more serious about that. And because at the end of the day, Without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk at you next time.